Thank you, Jim. Well, it is a privilege to be together as a body, and as we have said week after week for the past year, um, there's a lot of tension in a lot of churches over COVID and, and masks and all kinds of different things. We want to be caring and loving, but I just want to say how thankful the pastors are that you as a body have been really caring and loving and uh, trusting in God and looking to him. And it's just a privilege to, to be one of the pastors here. And um, I see Paula Payne out there, and uh, it's really good to have you here. It's been a, a year since I've seen you. And um, praise the Lord, man. We, uh, we are a blessed, a blessed body. Uh, let's let's uh, open in prayer, and then we'll get into this text. Father, you have blessed our church immensely with the saints, and we have young, and we have one with, ones with a little more age on them. And Lord, thank you that Paula is with us today, and thank you for her years of service and love for our body. And, uh, and Lord, we could mention others as well, but Lord, we're so thankful that we can be together and even on the stage here, I think this is the first time that Belinda has helped lead worship since the passing of her father. And Lord, we continue to pray for comfort for her. Thank you that her dad is with you in glory. No pain, no tears. It's with Jesus. And then during the worship as well, I see, you know, Cyril is leading worship with the drums. And uh, I'm sure... Next week at the Lord's table, he'll share a little bit, but we had a year and a half where he was not following you, Father, where he was selfish and looking to his own way, and you've brought him to repentance, and uh, you are good, because a lot of us prayed a lot for him, and uh, we ask you to continue to do your good work. And, uh, and Father, we're also really thankful that our Pastor Mark has the, the skills and ability and gifting from you to be an encouragement to this church in North Carolina that has lost two pastors in the last year, that they've gone home to be with you. And uh, pray, Lord, that this morning and then again this evening, that he would be a tremendous encouragement to that church that our God is faithful no matter the circumstances that we deal with here on earth. You are good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're above the age of 14, I'm going to say, uh, at a minimum, I would think most of us are disheartened to some degree, greater or lesser, of some of the events that are going on in our country and in our world and it might be just merely disheartened or it might be very concerned or it might be fearful or it might be almost debilitating fear of what are my kids going to do down the road or what are my grandkids going to do down the road or what am I going to do when I'm retirement age or you know, what's going on with our world? What about the freedoms that we enjoy as a church? Are we going to continue to enjoy those? What about Heritage Christian School? Um, what about relatives you have living in other places? I think most of us, have at some degree some of those concerns. And you might be saying, why, why can't we just have things how they were 20 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 70 years ago, or whatever? 
So how do I respond? And Jim already read it, but how do I respond in when my circumstances either are or may be like what is going on in Psalm 102? We even, you know, if we just look at verses 3 through 9, and we have some of this, this, this hurtful and discouraging and what's going on, you know, when, when my days pass like smoke, just get blown away, when my, when, my, when my bones burn like a furnace, my heart is struck down like, like mere grass. What do I do when things are so bad I even forget to eat? My loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm so alone, I'm like this desert owl or like a sparrow that's all alone. But then the next verse says, well, actually, I'm not alone because even all the day in verse 8, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I'm in mourning, so I, I eat ashes like bread and I mingle tears with my drink. That's how bad it is for the psalmist. So how do I respond when things in my life may be that way? Well, today we're going to see four attributes, and we're going to focus mostly on the last one, but we're going to see four attributes in this text that remind us in changing times, we serve an unchanging God. We're going to see that God is omnipotent, that God is eternal, that God is creator, that God is immutable. He is unchanging. And we're going to be reminded over and over and over. And you might be saying, yeah, I already agree with all that. But these are, these are bullets in our gun. These are arrows in, in, with, for our bow to remind us on Tuesday and on Friday. And when we're talking with our neighbor and when we're interacting with our children, that in changing times, and that's what we have, we serve an unchanging God. So let's look at his omnipotence right now, and we're really going to mostly focus on verses 23 through 27. Verse 23, the psalmist says, talking about God, it says, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. So the psalmist is saying, I assume I have this many days, or it's kind of normal for a human to live about this long, and he has taken the amount of days that I normally or that people would normally have, and he's condensing them down. He's making them less. The physical body that I normally would have He's, he's broken it. My strength, I don't have the strength that a normal person or another person has. And it's not, it's not from that person or for that enemy or from those. He says, this is from God. God's power has changed, has overridden my plans, my life, my expectations, my body. Now, a little bit of background of the psalm. There's, this is a penitential psalm. Um, penitence being in sorrow or regret. There's seven of them in Scripture. The most familiar one to most of us would be Psalm 51, where David says, Hey, God, to you, against you, and you alone, have I sinned? That um, has um, repentance and confession. This is the only penitential psalm, Psalm 102, that doesn't have repentance and confession like the other ones do, but it has the suffering and the discipline usually associated with sin, but it never tells us what the sin is or, or what, what the circumstances are that brought the psalmist to this point, but it is a penitential psalm. And one of the things we have to remember, because when we read verse 23, we can automatically think, oh, this is terrible, but really the psalmist, as he wraps up and as he, as he leads us through the entire thing, is saying, this is good. This is right because God's power is comfort. And we're going to see this in here. God's power is comfort. And if I, if I could explain it this way, um, most of us have been praying for the Baldwins a bunch over the past months. 
and uh, especially those of us who have been dealing with them often, and you'll think, you know, here's some new details that will come in of some, some interpersonal things or some struggles with another missionary, and, and the Baldwins have been so faithful in seeking to please the Lord and do what's right, even in challenging circumstances, and these little details will come back, like, why is this person responding this way, or why is this challenging thing happening? And from my perspective, I can say, I, I don't want this to be. This is not, I want them to be able to focus on sharing the gospel to Serbians that need it, to leading their school, to train Serbian pastors, to shepherd the flocks. But I find comfort when I say, we're servants. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is saying, Hey, Baldwins, I love you and I care for you and this is the path that I have for you. I have your best in mind. The king is going to work in his way and his servants are going to go where and how the king directs. And we pray to that end for the Baldwins. When we talk about God's strength, one of my kids told me one time, it's, it's nice to hug someone that's big and strong. And they were pretty little at the time and thought I was big and strong. But I could, I could agree with that. They said there's some comfort in hugging someone that loves you and is for you and has some strength to them. And I remember the first time I hugged Julius Maddox and I thought, my goodness, this is like wrestling a steer. This guy is so huge. And he's my friend and he's like, he's willing, he's, we're hanging out together and man, I'm glad he's with me. I'm glad he's on, he's on my side. And I haven't been in the army, but if you've been in the military, or you've been on a sports team, and maybe you had like the, the man kind of person, whatever group that you're with, and you're really thankful for that one who's got power and strength more than the average, and you go in in football and you're saying, I'm really glad we got that guy as our middle linebacker, or we really got that guy or that person in battle, in war, whatever it may be. There's a reason Goliath was popular. His power and his strength were immense. But we all know that Goliath was killed. And Samson was blinded and killed as well. And Sennacherib is run back to Assyria and others that we could come up with. So in our world of wars and injustice and lies, there is real abiding comfort in our powerful God. He is omnipotent. And he's also eternal. Verse 24 and it's interesting that the psalmist doesn't just recognize the attribute, but he sees it in context of his life, and he says, it is good that you are like this, God, because I know that I am not. He says in verse 24, he says, Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. He's saying, I've got, I've got a limited amount of days, and, and you can shorten them. You've got the power to do that. But unlike me, God, you whose years endure throughout all generations... You're not limited by 70 years or by 50 years or 90 years. You're, you continue, your years endure through all the generations. You're not a mere man. And it's interesting when we talk about God's eternality, the, the Bible never claims it per se. It just states it over and over and over. When we read in Genesis chapter 1 and it says, In the beginning, God. There's just the assumption that he has been there and will continue to be there. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. And it goes on, you know, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's there in the beginning. He's not a created being. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jewish audience is listening and they're saying, Abraham 
was almost 2,200 years before the time of Christ. So 2166 BC, Abraham comes on the scene and you were here before him. Jesus is saying, I'm eternal. I have always been. And what did his audience say? Where are the rocks? Let's stone him. Let's kill him. And Jesus slipped through their midst. The Bible doesn't try to prove God's eternality. It just states it over and over and over. If you want to look with me quickly, just page over a little bit to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 in the first few verses um, reminds us of God's eternality. It says in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or a watch in the night. Hey, a thousand years is like four hours to you. It's just, it's just this to you. That God is not limited by time or held back by time. You know, for, for us as humans, we, we forget details. And one of the reasons we enjoy looking at pictures, you know, someone will bring up some pictures of when your kids were little and you'll say, oh, look how cute you were. Or, or I remember when you used to wear that shirt every day for day after day after day because it was the only one you liked. Or I remember when you used to make that face because we forget but God's connection with time is just over all of that. It would, it would almost be like if, we, if you took a, a picture a month for five years or ten years, and, it, and then you took all those pictures and you put them on a big screen, and then you looked at them and you'd say, you know, if it's ten years, you've got 120 pictures all over the screen, and you see how your kids have changed, and hairstyles have changed, and clothing has changed, and, and maybe not everyone is in those pictures again. Or maybe some have joined those pictures again. You look at that and you see that and you can think of the joy and the sorrow over those 10 years. And to some degree, and it's not a perfect illustration, that's God's connection with time. He's not linked in, in a moment in time as we are. Although certainly he, he works in time. When, when the right time was, he sent his son, the scriptures say. But he's over that. He's not limited by that. He is eternal. He's also the creator says in, in verse 25, of old, you, God, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hand. So everything that we see here on this earth and everything in the heavens that we can see or, or not even see is all from the creative work of God. And Bible-believing Christians can have confidence that the Genesis record is true and it's enough. Would I like to know some more details of what God was doing? Absolutely. What, do I have some questions? Hey, I wonder what happened here. I wonder what happened here for sure. But we have confidence in the Genesis record. And for those that are tempted to kind of maybe want to bracket Genesis chapter 1 and say, well, we'll put that off to here and we'll look at the other scripture differently. Or, or maybe there's some, you know, that, that do that with the first 11 chapters in Genesis. There's a whole lot of other scripture where God makes creation claims that is outside of just those early chapters in Genesis. Um, and even Jesus making some of those claims. And we, we won't look at, at, at all of them, but just a few. We've got Moses only 1,400 years before the time of Christ. And, and he says in Exodus 20, in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth. So significantly after creation and 1,400 years before the time of Jesus, on another book outside of Genesis, we are told in six days, 
This is what God did. He created the heaven and the earth. And then he goes on and, and on the seventh day and has some explanation there. We could look at Psalm 33 that was written anywhere between 800 and 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. And in that, the psalmist tells us that the word of, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. We have some real confidence in God's word and his work in creation. Hebrews chapter 1, we move to the New Testament. And the writer of the Hebrews says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also, talking of Jesus, he created the world. We have confidence in God as creator. And, and, and we have confidence in, in even the science behind it, because unchanging science is comforting. Now, it's not comforting to me, and I'm, I'm no expert scientist, but it's not comforting when I hear someone say, like, well, here's what science used to think, and now science thinks that. I never like hearing that. But you know what I do like to hear? I like to hear that there's a thing called gravity. And when I'm walking in the mountains, I really like it, and I'm on some edge of some trail, that gravity is holding me down to the ground, that I'm not being kind of drifted up a little bit, or, it's, or it ebbs and flows. You know, we have a little more gravity right now and a little bit less right now. That it is a constant thing. That some boulder above me isn't getting lifted up and, oh, stop doing the gravity thing now and dropped it back down. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that, you know, energy is neither created or destroyed in a, in, a, in a fixed, sealed system. I'm thankful for things like our grandmas used to say, that fresh air is good for you. There's some unchanging things there. It really is. I'm thankful for unchanging biblical moral truth. Things that the Bible pushes of one man and one woman. The Bible pushing that money cannot fully satisfy. The Bible pushing that loving our neighbor as ourself is vital. It's not an option. It's not something that's nice. It's vital. Yet, at the same time, so many things do change. If you think even in your own circumstances, and we all have different circumstances, but you think of your own circumstances of kids moving away, or cultural norms shifting, or losing jobs, or abilities, or loved ones. Things all change. But God does not. Which takes us to our next and last one, that God is immutable. He's unchanging in his character, in his being, in his perfections, in his purposes, in his promises. He is unchanging. Um, let's, let's read in 26 and 27. It says, of all these things, you've got this foundations of the earth. You've got the heavens. And the psalmist says, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. You're just going to swap it out like a robe, but they will pass away because you, God, are the same and your years have no end. Now, if we want to talk about the attributes of God just to to, to help our thinking so we're, so we're on the same page here, we've got the communicable attributes of God, and we've got incommunicable. And those are really big words. You might think, well, I don't need to know those words, and you don't. But if you can think about it this way, there's attributes of God that we are to have like him, even though we won't be anywhere near his level. And so God commands us as believers to be loving. So I am to show agape love to other people. We are to, that is a primary way for non-believers to look in and see what's this Christianity about. Oh, you have love for one another. John talks about that. So we are to love. 
But love is an attribute of God that I can't begin to love perfectly at his level. But that's something that I need to aspire to as a child of God. We could talk about wisdom. Will I ever have the wisdom of God? No. But here and now, I need to seek wisdom. James says if you desire it, you should ask God, and he gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We should ask for wisdom. We read in the Proverbs, and we read other places in Scripture to seek wisdom, to seek understanding. But I will never get to the level that God has. Those are, those are communicable attributes, justice. We could look at others as well. These are attributes of God that we are to have as well, though it will not be to his level. The, the incommunicable attributes are things that God is, that we will never be, that we cannot be. And these are each of the ones that we've, we've looked at here today. God being an omnipotent, all-powerful. You might have some power at your work. You might have power with your kids. You might have power wherever, but you are not omnipotent. God is the only one who is all-powerful. We talk about creator. You might be a good artist. You might whip something up in the kitchen that's pretty amazing, but you're not creating out of nothing. That is only God is, is creator. And then eternal, we are... Uh, Eternal in a sense that from time of conception for eternity in the future, either with Christ or in eternal punishment, but we don't have eternality in the past, so we cannot be eternal. That's an attribute that only God has. And certainly immutability is very clearly not us as well because we change and we change and we change, but our God does not. And he, he reads all these, the psalmist reads all these, you know, he pushes us to think about these permanent things. If there's anything in this world that's permanent, it would be the dirt that's outside. It would be that there are stars up there and the sun up there and they're doing what they do. And he's saying, God, you're going to change this out. Well, how does, how does that fit? Or what, is, what does that look like? Why is that even scary to us? Well, why is, why is a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake so scary? Because you take something that is rock solid and move it around. That's not supposed to happen. You might have a big machine that can move a lot of dirt, but have everything around shaking in an earthquake? That doesn't fit with what we want to see, huh? Or we, we, we go to the ocean and we see the patterns of waves coming in. It's beautiful. We, you know, we, we, the kids play in there and there's sandcastles and the waves are coming in. There's high tide and low tide. But walls of water 40 feet high come... That doesn't, that, that's too powerful, it's too strong, it's too much. And the psalmist says, God, all this stuff changes, but you do not. Herman Bavink says this, and he's a, a Dutch theologian from a, quite a while back. He reminds us how important this is. And if you do some other reading, you'll see probably of the attributes of God, immutability has probably been the most attacked in the past 35 or even 40 years since the, the early 80s. A lot of attacks there. But, but listen to this quote. Um, he says this. He says, The doctrine of God's immutability, his unchangeableness, is of the highest significance. The contrast between being and becoming, so God being, humans becoming, we change. So the contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming, is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and can only find this rest in God, in him alone, for only he is pure being 
and no becoming. Now, there's a lot going on there, but if you think about that, and, and she can leave that up for a little bit, just think about that. We change, and some change we want to do. We want to lose weight. We want to learn how to do this. We want to, to adjust how we do this way. We want to respond better when, when we're upset or whatever. We are always changing, but God does not. Huge pusher that he is sovereign God himself. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow due to change. One of the joys of lifelong faith and study is seeing an unchanging God repeatedly. For those that have been believers a long time, and I'm getting there, but I haven't caught up to many of you, but I love talking with people who have some, some years behind them, and they're saying, God was faithful when I was in my 20s and my 30s and my 50s and my 60s and my 70s. He is, he is faithful. He is trustworthy. He has shown himself faithful on my behalf. So what was your understanding of his love for you when you were 12 versus today? And I know we have some 12-year-olds 12 12, 12 in here. We have some even younger than that. But, but for some of you adults, think back what you thought of God when you were 12. And some people in here said, well, I, have, I had no thought of God. I didn't even consider him. I knew nothing of him. Or maybe I knew of him, but I, I was not interested in him. He had not yet opened my eyes. And for others, you say, yeah, when I was 12, I, I trusted Christ. But over the years, how has he shown himself faithful? How has my understanding of him grown? What's your understanding of his love for you through painful circumstances? We can all think back of painful circumstances in our life in the past, or maybe even now, where we can say it was almost debilitating. I didn't know how to make sense of this. But God is my God, and I am his servant. And his, the king tells the servant where to go and what to do, and so I'm going to trust in him. And look at how my understanding of his faithfulness grew, even in painful circumstances, in his goodness and his unchangeableness. But the question, and I'm going to say this is a fair question to ask, but the question is asked, does God change sometimes? If you read your Bible, you read phrases in there at times that surely looks like God is changing. You might have, um, um, you might have phrases in there of, of God relented or God repented. You also have some arguments from, from, uh, from in the past for those, those critical of biblical Christianity. You might have um, arguments of process theology that was really big kind of back in the day in the early uh, 1920s, 30s, 40s. Process theology would say um, everything has to process or change, and if it doesn't process or change, it can't be alive. So if, if you have a plant on your, on your desk, and the plant, if it isn't growing and moving and cells changing, if, it's not, if things aren't happening with it, it means it's dead, and you're going to have to pitch it out. So process theology says God has to change if he really is alive. And that was really popular a hundred years ago, variations of it are still kind of kicked around today. Um, uh, open theism is a, is a big one that was popular in the 80s. Um, those of you, you know, my age or so, when you were in seminary, and, and even before I, before I was in seminary, there was big talk, topics that were talked about, um, isn't talked about so much today. But the basis of open theism is that, is that God is unsure what's happening in the future, but he is sure what's happening in the past. So, God remembers everything from the past to the present perfectly, 
but he doesn't really know what's going on in the future, a variety of things that could happen, and he's, he's open to that. That's kind of the idea of, of open theism. Um, again, what has often happened with those that, that push that is they get to the point where they say, really, nothing has authority in Scripture. But you might even be thinking in your reading of Scripture of, of God's um, repenting of something or relenting of something. Or you might think to um, Abraham and Isaac and he's going to kill them and then he decides not to or God gives another option. Did God change there? Um, you might think of God's promising judgment on Nineveh. That's one that's often brought up. Hey, hey, uh, Nineveh, judgment's coming. Jonah's saying, three days, you're done for. Walks around the city and then God didn't kill him. Also, did God change his mind? Does he not keep his promises? Um, a, a simple response, and I would encourage some more study on your own time, but a simple response would be, so much of the time in Scripture, God words things in ways that make sense to his audience, to give understanding to his audience, um, uh, to, to kind of put things in terms that humans can understand. Um, in most instances, God has a present intent with a situation but God can respond differently as situations change. So specific to Nineveh, um, he gives them wording. They repented. Glory to God. I mean, in the Assyrian Empire, one of the two capital cities, one of the most evil places, they repented, and God decided to show mercy in response. But his character, his being, his promises, his perfections, completely unchanged. And I would encourage you, as you're reading through Scripture, look for that. Look for God's work in those ways. And, and the question has to be asked, what if God could change? So, uh, does God change? I think we would argue from Scripture, no. But what if he could change? Could he then, we'd have to think, could he be better? Could he be worse? Uh, might he not be perfect now and he changes so he could be perfect? Could he be perfect now and if he changes some, he becomes less than perfect? There's some real issues if God can change. May he be a little bit evil or weak or otherwise flawed? What if we have a God who's omnipotent, but he's changing in his love and he's not completely loving? Or what if we have a God that's completely loving, but his omnipotence is going downhill? And so he no longer has the power to enforce or show or respond with love. A changing God is truly no God at all. What if he decided to change his plans? What if he decided he didn't want to be a savior? What if he decided he didn't want to return? An unchanging God does not fit with who he is, does not fit with scripture, cannot be. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, I'll read for you. And Isaiah says this, or God says this through Isaiah, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do that. That is not some God who's getting blown away by winds of this or that. That is a God saying, I am God, and this is how I work, and you can trust in me. And so the Reformer wrote and congregations sing, and we do, a mighty fortress is our God. 
The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. That we have a bulwark that never fails. And ultimately, Luther was not relying on a German prince or the finding of a court at Worms, but on the unchanging God. The unchanging God who, who may allow you to be burned at the stake as others were around that time. Or he might allow you, Luther, to be a pastor of a church, to meet a former nun and marry her and have a bunch of kids, and to pastor this church and to, to shepherd your family and to shepherd the church and to translate the Bible into, into the German language and to brawl with those that had some different thinking at times. God may allow that, Luther, or he may not, but he is still the unchanging God and he is trustworthy. He does not change. So what are some blessings of, of how this affects my day or even kind of some, some, some applications of this in this text right here? Um, and I wanted to say this. Some of you really love change. There's people out here that you love to travel and you, you might really like a steak cooked this way, but if someone wants to completely change it up and do it a different way, how fun. You like exotic foods. You like doing all kinds of different things. You know, one time your coworker is calm and, and quiet, and the next day they're zany, and you think, how fun. There's definitely people that love change even in this group, okay? But I'll tell you, I'm not one of them. I don't like when things change. Um, I have a good neighbor who's 80. I'm telling you, I'm a little nervous. I don't, I don't want him to die. I like, I like Fred. He's a really good guy. I mean, I, I have had, and Natalie can tell you, I... I've had the same pillow our entire marriage. It's a feather pillow, and it's like this tall. And I love it. And I don't want it to change. And uh, she, can, she can tell you that. She doesn't like my pillow, but I, it's my pillow. I love it. Um, I have had the same dessert on my birthday for 35 years. I think I was 10. First, and I've been good for 35 years, and I'm planning on riding that horse for 35 more if God gives me the, God gives me the time. I don't really like change. Kids moving away or changing American political climate or ways you vote and, well, what do we do here and what do you do there? Biblical Christianity being pushed farther and farther to the edges of society. I think this is, this is not what I want for my kids. It's not what I want for me. This is not what I want for my grandkids. But what are some blessings? What are some applications? What are some things to think about? And I, I would encourage this. One, am I thinking about God's attributes as I'm navigating change. So am I going through life being frustrated about what's going on politically, by what's going frustrated, being frustrated with what's going on with my extended family, being frustrated with this and this, or am I saying, I have a God who is eternal and creator and omnipotent and, and he is unchanging and I, I'm going to trust in him. This is not what I would choose, but I'm not God. I'm the servant. And you know what? I'm a servant, but also God says, you know what? I'm the king and you're the servant, but you know what? I'm no longer going to call you servants. I'm going to call you friends. And he has my best in mind. So can we think about God's attributes as we go through things in life that are challenging? Number two, am I trying to find comfort in things that change or do not satisfy? And I think for most of us, if we looked in the mirror, we would say, guilty. To a greater or lesser degree, we are trying to find, or we often try to find comfort in things that change and do not satisfy. This person always needs to respond this way. They used to be so nice to me and now they're mean. That cannot be. 
it happens. These circumstances that change, no, no, no. I find comfort in this. I want this to be that way. Circumstances change. None of those things are made to give me comfort. God Almighty has been given for comfort. And even a few verses, if we could look, um, let's look in Psalm 102 at 17. I think this, this is helpful. It's talking about God. You know, he's just talked about, hey, things were rotten. In verse 12, he says, but even though things are rotten, I wither away like grass. In verse 12, the psalmist says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are the king. You are remembered through all generations. No human beings are. We're not supposed to be. No one's, humans aren't supposed to be exalted. I will never forget this guy or that guy. That's not the purpose of human beings. But God is to be remembered throughout all generations. It says, you're going to have pity on Zion. You're going to arise. We go down to 17. This is what you do, God. You regard the prayer of the destitute. So when you are feeling destitute, God is hearing your prayer. And he does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. So you think about kids and grandkids. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. What is he, what is he talking about right there? He's talking about us. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about a peculiar people that God decided to bring to himself. He's talking about a new and living way. He's talking about binding up the brokenhearted and setting the captives free that Jesus did. It says, as we go on in verse 20, to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who are doomed to die. And Jesus set captivity free. Gave us a new and living way. And so if you were in here and you're 12 years old or you're 82 years old or you're 8 years old, you can have confidence in God's unchangeableness and his sending of his son and opening the way for a new and living way. Those of us who are afar off have brought, been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in verse 28, it says this, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And we all know that Pastor Mark read off, I think it was just last week, a bunch of rotten things in history. How many people died here, and how many people died here, and how many people died here, and how many people died here? So this is not to say that death does not happen in this world, because it does. But even in the midst of death, we can have confidence that the children of your servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established, because the unchangeable God has us in his hand exactly where we are to be. Number three. And this is a comfort. Nothing can control or force him. Nothing can manipulate God or force him to do this or this or this. Malachi 3, and we could look at that a lot more, but just know this. Malachi 3 says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. And just before that, he's saying, I'm against sin in this way, and I'm against sin in this way, and I'm against sin in this way. But since I do not change, hey, Israel, that's the reason why you're not consumed. I do not change. No one can control or force me. Fourthly, Jesus is not capricious with us or fickle. He doesn't like do it this way and then this way and I don't know what to do with you or this time I'm going to do it this way. God is not like that. Hebrews chapter 1 says, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years have no end. And Hebrews 13 tells us the famous verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. That's the God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a changing world. We live in a world that, by your good gift, does not give us all the comfort that we desire. Lord, what a shame it would be if we found all the comfort that we desired merely here in this, in this world, in, in, the, in the rocks and ground, in the heavens above, and said, hey, this is all I need. But Lord, you have created us for something more than that. You have put a need in our heart for something more than that. We need Jesus Christ. Lord, will you open the eyes of those in this room that do not yet trust you? Will you open their eyes to their need for you? That this world is passing away. As, as Pastor Mark has been preaching in Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth is coming and, and eternal punishment is coming for some. And eternal life with you, new heavens and new earth is promised for your children. And when, this, when these verses say this earth is going to be, going to be traded out like a robe, things are going to be changed out like that, that is what it's talking about. Lord, may one in here today trust in you, that you are the Savior. Take sin upon yourself, new life, the abundant life given to your children. Lord, may we be people that rather than bemoaning the change in this world, let it more laser focus to show us this all might change, but my God is the same and he's good and I trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.